or Amos, as some would say. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you have trouble finding it, it's between Hosea and Jonah. If that's not helpful for you at all, I understand. Is, um, is my mic on? Are you guys good? Can you hear me? I'm having trouble hearing myself. Good? Yes? Okay. So let's just do one more review. Normally, we'll start the sermon with an introduction, but because the book of Amos is so unfamiliar to most of us, it's probably good for us to go ahead and just do one more quick review. So we remember that the nation of Israel split between the north and the south after uh, Solomon died and the kingdom was left to his sons. There was a little bit of a civil war there. And right after the kingdom split, uh, there was a temple built in the north because the king of the north, he realized that with the temple down in the south, with the two kingdoms, uh, the two nations in the south, excuse me, the, uh, the two tribes in the south, he realized that uh, if the people from the north traveled down into the south to go worship, they would probably just want to stay there and hang out there. So being the politically astute ruler that he was, he decided to go ahead and build his own temple in the north. He actually built two. He built one in Bethel, and he built one in Dan. Now, this was a couple hundred years before the days of Amos, and there continued to be friction between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom looked down on the south because they had conquered them militarily, They went in and busted them all up. They broke down their northern wall and just the northern wall as if to say, hey, listen, we don't have to beat you up as bad as we can. We'll just break down the northern wall so that you can look up and see us and always remember that we're better than you and we're stronger than you, okay? And uh, the south looked down their noses at the north because they said, oh, well, militarily you might be stronger than than us, but look at you. You're a bunch of idolaters. You've set up all these pagan worship experiences in the north and on top of that you've built temples that the Lord hasn't even authorized so you may be bigger and badder and you may have eight more people or tribes in us up in the north but we think that we're better than you we remember also that we were entering into a time of peace and prosperity for the north and the south the north had won some military victories they had begun to expand their borders which meant that they had increased financial prosperity in the land and that was even true for the south and so even though they didn't really like each other they also had begun to live at peace with one another you know it seemed like things were never going to be reunited but they were sort of learning to get along as neighbors even neighbors who don't really like each other very much well it was at this time that the lord sent the prophet amos from the south up into the north and we remember we said that that was it was it was It was just incredible that the Lord would do that. That would be like sending a prophet from the north in the Civil War down to prophesy against slavery in the south. It was just an incredible thing. So the Lord sent Amos from the south up into the north to prophesy against the north. But the way that he did it was even more impactful. Amos started by prophesying against all these pagan nations around the nation of Israel. And he started saying, yeah... Moab and da 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 and all these guys they're all bad and and the people of Israel they're just into it they're listening they're like yeah Lord punish them these godless pagan people and then Amos moves on and he starts prophesying against Judah 
And the people in the north are loving that even more. It's like, yeah, I can't believe this prophet from Judah is prophesying against his own people. But you tell him, buddy, you know what's up. This would be like a Yankee prophet prophesying against the 13 uh, states up in the northern part of the United States. All the southerners would have loved it. But then they were really taken aback when finally Amos turned and prophesied against them. And what we saw there is that Amos prophesied against their oppressive behavior, the way that they were crushing the poor. And all of this flew downstream from their idolatry. they began to worship other gods and they forgot that God in his word had already told them clearly that if you're going to follow me, you have to love your neighbor, including your poor neighbor, and you cannot oppress them. Well, the Lord had sent prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel in the north, calling them to repentance. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't listen. And so the Lord says, enough is enough. I'm going to send my judgment upon you. And I'm going to oppress you in the same way that you have oppressed the poor. So with that review in mind, let's read our text for this morning. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is God's holy inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and even if it seems strange to us, it is still perfectly good for us, and so we must read it, understand it, and live by it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to see you and your truth in your word this morning. Amen. The word of the Lord is powerful. More than that, it is efficacious. Efficacious is a word that means that 
it always accomplishes its intended purposes. So the Lord says this in Isaiah 55, 11. He says, my word goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now this is really good news for those who treasure God's word. It's really good news for those who obey God's word. We understand that the word by which the universe was created is also the same word that was given to us to make us wise for salvation. We understand that God's word can bring us rich blessings according to God's good, loving design for our lives. If you listen to Jesus in Luke 11, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Why are you blessed? Well, because the word accomplishes that which God intended for you when you obey it. But what happens when we reject the word of the Lord? Well, listen to the words of Isaiah 63.10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. I cannot imagine anything more terrifying than the idea that God has turned from my friend to my enemy. I cannot imagine anything more terrifying than the idea that God would be actively against me, that he would be opposed to me. Nevertheless, that's what we find in the book of Amos in today's text. The Lord has turned and he has become the enemy of his people. And we see that very clearly in verse 1 where it says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. This is not a phrase that you should pass over lightly, brothers and sisters. This is one of those things that when you're reading the Bible, you kind of just glaze over it and you don't really stop to consider it. But do stop and consider it. Do stop and consider the fact that the people of Israel are in a supremely dangerous position here and that God's word, which never fails, has been spoken and it has not been spoken in their favor. Rather, it has been spoken against them. You'll find a vivid picture of what this means for their lives when you look at verses 12 and 13 of today's text. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and a part of a bed. This imagery that Amos uses, it comes from his own background as a shepherd. He's recalling his days where a lion has gotten into the sheep herd and he goes out to try to rescue the sheep and it's too late. By the time that he gets there to beat off the lion, to fight off the lion, the only thing that's left is maybe a couple of legs, maybe the, the corner of an ear. The Lord is saying, yes, one day I will rescue my people from this discipline that I'm bringing upon them for their covenant curses. But when I do, this discipline is going to be so severe that there will hardly be anything left of them to rescue. And we remember that this is happening to them because of all their unrighteous ways. We looked at that last week. We looked at their unrighteousness in depth. But you can see a summary of that in verse 10. Look back at verse 10. It says, They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. 
We're going to look more at that again next week, so I'm not going to dig into that too deeply today. Now, the point that Amos is driving home here is that the punishment for these sins is going to be comprehensive. The Lord will take away everything that this people has acquired through violence and oppression and injustice. And you see that when you look at verse 15. It says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. Remember, we said in our very first sermon that the Israelites had become so wealthy that they literally had winter and summer homes. You know, like people who say that they like to summer in Connecticut? Well, that's what the people have become in Israel. They're so wealthy that their homes are covered in ivory. Now, the problem wasn't that they were wealthy. The problem was that they acquired that wealth by putting their foot on the neck of the poor in their midst. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take all of that ill-gotten gain away from you when I discipline you. Not only that, but on that day, the Lord will also destroy the idolatry that led them to live in such an unjust fashion. So look at verse 14. That on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Uh, These horns refer to the golden calf just showing up once again in the history of Israel as part of their idol worship. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to cut the horns off of that bull. Apparently God is from Texas. But uh, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to cut the horns off of that bull and I'm going to show you that this God that you think is a God, this God that you say, this is our God who rescued us from Egypt, I'm going to show you on that day that he is no God and you'll be reminded to stop worshiping these idiot false gods and to worship me, the one who, verse 1 says, actually rescued you from the nation of Egypt. But before the Lord brings this destruction on the nation of Israel, he's going to give them a fair trial. You'll remember that uh, one of the themes of justice that, that just comes up over and over again in the Bible is that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you see in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see the same thing in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 when the Lord commands his church to carry out church discipline. There must be the evidence of two or three witnesses when a charge is brought against a brother or sister in the life of the church. Well, this is exactly what the Lord is doing here in this text. He's putting his people on trial for their unjust ways, for their idolatry. And he calls the peoples of Ashdod and Egypt to stand against the nation of Israel as witnesses in his cosmic tribunal. So look at verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. The Lord is saying, Ashdod, Egypt, come down, you people who don't even know God, you people who are yourselves living lives of of oppression, you come down and you get in the mountains that surround Samaria, remember that's just the ten tribes in the north, and I want you to look down into that city, look down into that land, and you tell me that they're not being a people of oppression. 
Friends, how far has the nation of Israel fallen when God can call these pagan nations, these godless nations around them to bear witness against them for their wickedness? You see the same testimony playing out again in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with sin issues in the life of the church. And he says, you guys have this sin in the life of the church. You're tolerating the sin. In some sense, you're even celebrating it. That's so bad that even the pagans around you would, would just find it impossible to allow this in their midst. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. It's a sad state of affairs when God's people allow themselves to fall into such a state of sin that even pagans can render judgment on them. Earlier this, earlier this year, the Houston Chronicle, uh, they published a story wherein they documented the case of 20 years of abuse and cover-up of over 700 victims of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I'm not picking, I know that denominationally we're the church of God. I'm not picking on a different denomination. I'm just talking about the fact that this is, these are Christians who have pagans coming to be witnesses against them in the public eye. That is what has happened here. Friends, this is why regenerate church membership and church discipline are so important. Doctrines like these may seem uh, impractical, they may seem abstract to us, especially when everything appears to be going well in the life of the church. But when sin rears its ugly head and we find ourselves under the wrath of God because of our unjust ways, we'll find ourselves sitting there with dumb looks on our faces asking, what happened? How did we get this far? Well, it's, the answer is obvious. We didn't do what God told us to do in order to keep us walking in the path of holiness in order to prevent us from coming to look like the nations around us. When your whole philosophy of ministry is about growing the church up as big as possible, as fast as possible, you'll do whatever you can to get as many people in there on a Sunday morning, get them all baptized, call them all members of your church. And it doesn't even matter if they're Christians. It doesn't even matter if they've been truly converted. And because you messed up on the front end, then when it comes time to do what Jesus has commanded you to do on the back end, which is to church discipline people, to excommunicate people who are obviously unregenerate, you can't do that because you're the reason why all the unregenerate people are in the church in the first place. This is how you end up with a church that doesn't care about right doctrine. This is how you end up with a church that worships idols. This is how you end up with a church that oppresses poor people. It's been said before that any given church is just a generation away from losing the gospel. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but I think I understand what, what they're trying to get out there, and I think the general sense of what they're trying to communicate is true. And that's if we don't take advantage of the means that God has provided for us to ensure that we continue to be a holy people who walk according to God's holy law, we will find that we have become unholy. And God's justice will be against us. Even as a New Testament church, his lampstand can certainly be removed from us. The people of Israel would have known this if they would have been more careful to pay close attention to God's law. 
they would have remembered that God had told them over and over again in the Bible that it was their job to love their neighbor, to serve the poor in their midst, not to take advantage of them or to crush them or, or to oppress them. Or maybe they did hear. If that's the case, we have to remember what James said. Hearing is not enough. It is not sufficient to merely be hearers of the word. We must also be doers of the word. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw from 1 Corinthians, when Will was teaching us in chapter 10, that all these stories in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, which is, we said last week, kind of a personification of all of us who are continually messing up, okay? We said that these stories were written down as examples for us so that we could learn from them and avoid those mistakes, right? That's what 10.11 says. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Well, okay, let's, let's pause. Let's ask ourselves, how can we learn from this? And I think one of the most important questions we can ask is, how did the nation of Israel, or at least the 10 northern tribes, how did they get this far gone? How did things get so bad? Well, I think the answer is in verse 2. At least part of the answer is in verse 2. Let's look there. <clears throat> it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here we see that the nation of Israel was known by God. Now, that word know is not referring to intellectual knowledge as if the Lord didn't know all the other families of the earth. This is the language of election. Robert Brayburn says it like this. This is a very characteristic biblical usage of the verb to know. Here, the verb to know means to love or to choose or to form a relationship with. You can think about that same verb being used for the sexual relationship between Adam and Eve. They knew one another. Well, that wasn't intellectual. No, they had an intimate relationship. You can see the same thing where the Lord says to Abraham and Genesis 18:19 I have known him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Or you can consider Deuteronomy 7:6 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Same thing here. All these families of the earth, that just means all the peoples of the earth, and the Lord has specifically chosen Israel to have a special relationship with. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this to make sure that we understand the nature of God's election of Israel. So I'm going to give you three C's. These are going to be pretty rapid fire for the note takers. Three C's to help us better understand God's election of Israel. God created Israel. God communicated to Israel and God covenanted with Israel. So let's walk through them. Number one, God created them. Isaiah 43, 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. You see the same thing later when First Peter talks about this uh, electing of Israel. He says, once they were not a people, but then God made them a people. Number two, God communicated with them. God is not the God of the deists. 
The God of the deists say that, that God created the world and the universe and all the laws of nature and everything that we see. And he, he did it like a man who makes a clock and winds it up and then sets it there and then leaves it alone and never has anything to do with it again. And eventually time and history are going to run out. But until then, God is sort of uninvolved. Well, God's word says something entirely different, friends. It says that God communicates to us in a myriad of ways. One of the ways that God communicates to us is just through nature. Right? You look at the sun and the stars and the moon and the sky. You look at the trees and the grass of the field and you should understand something about the reality of the fact that God exists. But in relation to election, we know that God specifically and directly gives revelation to his people. He communicates to them in a way that he does not communicate to other people. Hebrews 1.1 says it like this. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That is, the word of the Lord comes directly to the people of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the sermon. Number three, he covenanted with them. He covenanted with them. You remember that our pocket-sized definition of covenant is a relationship grounded in a promise. Well, that relationship, brothers and sisters, is not something that we initiated In our sin, if we were left up to our own devices, we would never reach out to God. Romans 1 tells us that we spend most of our time suppressing God, pushing down the truth of God, trying to get away from God because He's holy and we're not. But Deuteronomy 7 explains how God reached out to us and initiated a relationship with us. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see that same language here. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Now each of these aspects, God's creation, his communication, and his covenant, These should have blown away the people of Israel. They should have been so blown away by God's love for his undeserved, unmerited favor that they should have responded to God's love in kind. They should have had a right response of worship and faithfulness. That is not what we see. The people of God misunderstood God's love. Rather than seeing it as motivation for righteousness and for holy living, And right worship, they thought that God's special love for them was an excuse to just kind of live however they wanted to live. Instead of seeing God as a father who loves them and who would very much discipline them for the sake of their own good, they came to see God as the grandpa who would just sort of let you get away with murder because he loves you. We're all familiar with the classic trope of uh, a student at a university whose father is like the dean of the school, and because of that, he gets to get away with anything. He can do anything on campus, and nothing's ever going to happen to him. Well, that's how the nation of Israel had come to see themselves in relation to God. They thought, God is our father. He chose us. He's never going to punish us. He'll He'll punish those pagans, but he won't punish us because he loves us. They should have known better. From the very beginning, when God first formed them and chose them, he communicated to them the fact that he is loving 
and that he is also just and that he will punish sins. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's the problem. The nation of Israel stopped there. Like people who read what Jesus says in Matthew 7, uh, judge not. They just sort of stop reading there. But then he goes on to say, and he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This wrong-headed view of the love of God that excludes the wrath of God, it's not unique to ancient Israel. It's how most modern people tend to think about God and his love. If you go out there and you ask any person, do you believe in God? If they say yes, and you say, do you think that God loves you? And they'll say yes. And then you say, do you think that that means that God would never punish you? They'll probably say yes. You say, do you think that God would ever put his wrath upon you? Of course not. Do you think God would ever send somebody like you to hell? Oh, definitely not. But they're wrong. Not long ago, a supposedly Christian author came out with a book called Love Wins. And in this book, he argued that because God loves us so much, he would never punish us. He would never send his wrath on us. He would never send us to hell. What this, what this author misunderstood is that God's love is never at odds with God's justice. It is precisely because God loves that he punishes. Because the thing that he loves most in the world is himself and his glory. When you understand that the justice of God can never be separated from the love of God, then the fact that love wins is actually not good news for you if you are still lost in your sin. It has only compounded your sad state. But there's more to see in verse 2. You go back there, you see, it's because, the Lord says, because I've known you, and only you of all the families of the earth, I will punish you. It's precisely because God has elected Israel, and covenanted with Israel, and communicated to Israel. It's precisely because of this that God will have to punish Israel and discipline his people. Jesus said something like this later in his ministry. In Luke 12, he said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In the same way that teachers of God's word will be held to a stricter standard because they know more, so too Israel is held to a higher standard of judgment because they have been known by God. The same thing is true for us as a church, friends. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 26. We're going to take that as an amen from baby Nora. She's excited. Hebrews 10, 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now what this means is it's referring to a bunch of Jews who came out of the sacrificial system and they came to view Christ as their ultimate and final sacrifice. And then because of persecution, they have begun to second-guess that. They've begun to doubt it, and they're considering abandoning Christ. And what he's saying is, listen, you've received the knowledge that Christ is your final sacrifice. So if you abandon that and you go back to your old ways, to the sacrificial system, there's nothing left for you there. There is no more sacrifice. So, well, what, what then does remain? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's that theme again. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That doesn't mean that he was made holy. It means he was set apart in the covenant community and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, friends, none of us this morning are in danger, I don't think, of going back to the old Jewish sacrificial system but we could very much be in danger of just going back to whatever our formal, former misunderstanding of God is. Every single person in this room, at least as of this morning, has heard the truth of Jesus Christ. You have, as, as the author says in verse 26, you have received the knowledge of the truth, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way to be reunited with the Father. Now, if you have heard that and you reject it and you go back out into the world in love, I'm telling you that the only thing that remains for you is the fearful expectation of judgment because vengeance belongs to the Lord. It makes sense when those people who don't know God act godless. But for those of us who have been known by the Lord, who have been loved by the Lord, who have been rescued and redeemed by the Lord, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so the day of discipline, says verse 2, is soon to come to the nation of Israel. I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Now the day of reckoning is coming. As I've read the commentaries on this, I found that a number of them are trying to interject some stuff that comes later into the book, into this part of the book, and I don't think it's helpful. I don't think that the Lord is saying this to them so that they might be snapped out of it and come back to the Lord. I think the Lord has already decided this discipline is taking place. And now he is announcing it to his people. And he does so in verses 3 through 8 by giving a series of seven questions. Each is meant to have uh, an obvious answer, right? And I think it's the first question stands on its own, and then I think there are three pairs of two questions. So the first question is, do two people walk together without agreeing? That is, like, if you're going, if two people who left from point A end up at point B together, the odds of that just happening by chance are, are slim. They probably got together and agreed, I'm going to walk with you to the grocery store, okay? Then he goes on, the next pair of questions has to do with a lion having prey. 
The point that these questions are trying to drive home is that uh, a lion roars when he's about to take his prey or when he has his prey, okay? Then the next pair of questions has to do with birds and snares. The point is a bird doesn't just fall out of the sky unless it's died, and a snare doesn't snap unless it's taken an animal, okay? Then the next two pairs of questions are about destruction coming to the city, and it should be obvious to everyone who hears these questions in the nation of Israel that destruction doesn't come upon a city unless the trumpet has blown. That's their warning signal. And also that destruction doesn't come upon a city unless the Lord has done it. I'm not going to stop and hang out on that. But if you have a theology of judgment and destruction that says that only Satan is responsible for it or it's just dumb bad luck, this verse would tend to contradict that. The Lord is sovereign even over the destruction of cities. Now, all of these questions are driving home one point. And the point is in verses 7 and 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. In the same way that a trap doesn't spring unless it's taken its prey, in the same way that a lion doesn't roar unless it has its prey, in the same way that a trump doesn't just blast for no reason, a prophet doesn't prophesy judgment against the people of God unless the Lord is surely about to bring justice to them. And so you see, verse 8, the lion has roared. Amos is saying, listen, the judgment's coming, I'm telling you, because I'm prophesying, the lion is roaring, the judgment is coming. And then his response to that in, in the second half of verse 8, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? He's saying, listen, I'm not here on my own will. You know, I didn't take off vacation days to come up into the north so a bunch of people who would hate me would hear a prophecy about a bunch of stuff that they really don't want to hear. I'm here because I don't have a choice. The Lord has sent me as a prophet to warn you, so I, I hope you hear the lion roaring now. The judgment is coming. Now, we thought about this last week, but I think it, it bears repeating. It bears us spending more time on this week. This is not the first time that the Lord has warned his people. You know, sometimes as like a parent, your kids can do stuff that gets on your nerves or that they're not supposed to do, and you just let it simmer, and then finally you snap on them, right? That's not what God's doing here. It's not like he's just let this build up and build up and build up until he finally says, ah, I'm going to send the Assyrians to take you all out. That's not what's happening. We saw last week that the Lord has been sending prophets. He's been warning his people. And what happened? Well, they, they didn't want to hear it. So they shut the prophets up. They didn't want to hear the warnings. You can look back and see that in chapter 2, verse 12, if you want. Now, what's amazing is that this same thing happened when Jesus came. The light of the world, says Jesus in John chapter 3, has come. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, the reason why they didn't want to hear from Jesus is because they loved their sin. And so just like they shut up the prophets, they shut up Jesus. This wasn't unique to Jesus. It wasn't unique to Amos. You can see the same thing in the days of Jeremiah. Listen to the way this sounds. Listen to the way he words this. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. 
Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord is not zealous to punish us for our sins. It's not like he's up there with his lightning gun waiting to zap us if we make an oopsie-daisy. The Lord's justice comes against people who love their sin. They enjoy it. They don't want to get rid of it. They don't want God. God requires holiness. They want their sin. So they say, get out of here, God. I want what I want. So I asked you this morning, what do you want? And a lot of that I ask you, what is it that you want to hear? Do you want to hear the word of the Lord? Even if it calls you to give up your sin? Or do you want to be told that everything is okay even if it's not? I know what that's like. Sometimes it's so nice to be lied to. It's nice to be told things that you know for a fact aren't true. The same thing happened in the days of Isaiah. Listen to what he says about the people of Israel. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. But listen to what they say. They say to the prophets, do not see. Do not prophesy to us what is right and speak to us instead smooth things. Speak to us illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Don't tell us the truth about ourselves. Tell us that everything's fine. Tell us that God loves us. Tell us that He would never punish us. Tell us us that everything's just going to be okay. This pattern of willful ignorance did not cease in the Old Testament, nor did it cease in the New Testament. Paul knew that this sort of pattern was going to continue on in the life of the church until Jesus comes back. So that's why as he's writing to his protege, his disciple, this young pastor Timothy, he says this, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Speak to us smooth things, pastor. Tell us that everything's going to be okay. Don't tell us anything about God and his holiness. Don't don't tell us anything about repentance. We don't want to hear that. We want you to tickle our ears. We want you to make us feel good. The dynamic that's at play here is super interesting because it's not like wolves have snuck into the church. Paul is saying that people are going to bring the wolf on staff. They're going to be putting out job descriptions. They're going to be looking at resumes for the wolf. They're going to put them on a good salary with benefits. They're going to make them feel comfortable and at home in the life of the church. They just want to feel good. They want somebody who will make them feel like they've done just enough of their religious duty to be okay with God, but not anything more. They don't want to have to take up their cross. They don't want to have to die to themselves. This routine is as old as humanity itself, brothers and sisters. You go back to the days of Genesis, you remember how our father Adam and how our mother Eve was deceived. Satan came and he said, hey, I know that God said if you eat of that tree, you're gonna die. That doesn't make you feel very good, does it? I'm here to tell you, you can eat that tree. Everything's gonna be okay, you're not gonna die. 
for the members and the visitors here this morning. I know you're probably tired of hearing stuff like this, but it just needs to be said over and over again. If you're looking for a church to make you feel good every Sunday morning, I know where you can find one. I know where you can find 10. You can find one within a square mile of this church. But as your pastor, I am less concerned with whether or not you leave here feeling fuzzy and warm inside, and I'm more concerned with you having an eternal joy, even if you have to feel uncomfortable right now for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning as God deals with your sin. The book of Amos is a tough book to preach through because it's just week after week, sin, guilt, repentance. That's why a lot of pastors don't preach through it. That's the reason why I myself even feel the weight of it as I preach through it. But I don't take it for nothing that God has us going through this book. It's, it's more than likely that we probably have something that we need to be repenting of. It's more than likely that we need to be seeing ourselves in the people of Israel, and as God warns them and calls them to repentance, alarms should be going off in our own head and hearts, and we should be thinking, you know what? I, I should be busy repenting as well. I'm telling you, I'm thinking about this in my own life. Amber and I had a big fight last night. It revealed some sin in both of our hearts. And there's been other patterns of sin in our marriage. Some of it smaller, some of it bigger. And every time that the Lord calls us to repent of it, it hurts. I don't enjoy it. I don't want God to expose my sin to the light because as it dissipates in the light of God's holiness, it hurts me. But I'm always thankful when it's done. It's always for the best. So what is it this morning that you need to be thinking about? If you don't know the Lord, I can tell you what it is. Your whole life is sin. You've rebelled against the God who made you. You've hated his ways. And even as he lovingly calls you to repentance, you have tried to shut his voice up. But it's not by accident that you're here this morning. His voice is calling you even now, lovingly, to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I don't know what particular sin you may be dealing with in your own heart, in your own family, in your own life, but you know. Take this as a kindness from God. He's gently calling you. Don't be like the prophets, of the people of old. Don't be like the people of Israel. Don't shut his voice up. Listen to him. It may hurt, but I promise it will do you good. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he asked his disciples a question about these Galileans. They suffered some crazy thing that happened with Pilate. We're not going to talk about that. But he says this. He says, you know those Galileans who suffered like that? Do you think that they were worse sinners than you? And then he says, no, I tell you they're not. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And he says, or those from the Tower of Siloam, 18 people, tower fell on them, they died. Do you think that God was punishing them when that happened because they were worse sinners than you? Well, no, I tell you that they weren't. And unless you repent, you will also die. Well, I'm just standing here saying the same thing to you, friends. Do you think that the people of Israel 
who were later conquered by Assyria and dispersed among the nations, do you think that they were worse than you? I tell you that they weren't. And if we don't repent, we too will perish. Hebrews 1.1, as we already saw, tells us that God used to speak to us through his prophets. But now in these last days, he speaks to us through the word of his son. And that word is a good word. God does not desire that any would perish. He desires that all would come to know his son and have everlasting life. If he was greedy for slaughter, if he was zealous to impose his wrath, nobody would be breathing in this room right now. But God loves us and he's patient with us. And he sent his son on a rescue mission to die for us and to save us and to bring us home. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And because of that, he had to endure the death of his son, who was not wicked in any way. And Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our unfaithfulness. And if we repent of our sins and if we trust in him, well, then we get all the credit for his righteous life. I cannot think of anything better to tell you this morning. I cannot think of a better news in the world, a greater hope to offer you than that. The words of Jesus, even when he calls us to repentance, as heavy as this last 45 to 50 minutes has been, even those heavy words are still like the sweet bleeding of a lamb. He's calling out to us, telling us to come home again. And we have to take advantage of it today, the day of salvation, because one day the bleats of the lamb will turn into a roar from the mouth of the lion who will come to bring perfect justice. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to not just hear your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to do it, to obey it, And in order to do that, Lord, we need you to help us love it. We need you to help us love you. It's so easy to not love you. And we know that the only reason that we can is because you keep us in your perfect love. So would you make this people and this church more like your people in heaven who are all found in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.